Hello and welcome. In this episode, you will discover the major mistakes a business owner makes when trying to scale their business, the vital elements for scaling a business, the one single thing someone can do to 10x their productivity. My guest today is my good friend, Bill Prater. Welcome, Bill. Good to see you, Mustafa. Great to see you. Long time no see. And today we're talking about growing versus scaling your business, which is the best strategy for your business. Now, um, as usual, please make sure to like and subscribe to whichever channel you're watching. Share the link with your friends, a business owner that could benefit from this very insightful conversation that is coming up. Bill knows his stuff. He's been around the block for quite a few years and he, is, um, he has a lot of knowledge and wisdom and you're going to see in a, in, in a minute or two. And uh, if you have any questions, tap, put, them, put them in a comment on uh, social media and we'll do our best to cover it either during the show or after the show. Now, let me do the proper introduction to my friend, Bill, and we're going to dive into a very interesting conversation because growing and scaling our business is kind of important, right? And so let's do this. Bill Prater is the founder and CEO of Business Mastery and the creator, creator of Scalology. Bill earned his reputation as America's business alchemist by helping business owners and entrepreneurs break free of inertia and accelerate into the future uh, they dream of. He loves nothing better than sharing what he has learned by working with those who are dissatisfied with the status quo and eager to transform themselves and their business. He created Scalology, and the business mastery system as the core foundational principles of dynamic and continuous business growth. A typical client of his, his sees their company rising to a position of preeminence and is not satisfied with just getting to the next level. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. Looking Great forward. Great to see you. Where about are you? Phoenix, Arizona. And what's it like out there right now? <laughs> yeah, so before you started, you did hear in the background whistling sounds. So we're having a very unusual mid-February here in Phoenix, Arizona. Although the temperature is not bad, it's probably 60 degrees Fahrenheit. We've got a very high wind gusting up to around 50 degrees. Now, that's nothing at all like somebody's high winds, but for Phoenix, Arizona, it is high wind. Yeah. Well, we got about almost a half a meter of snow up here yesterday. And my wife went to drive my kid to school and she got stuck on the way like a couple of times. And uh, it's been interesting. The roads are slick and uh, not easy to drive on up here either. And um, so um, let's dive into it. Bill, what is your story? So uh, story. So part one of my story is that when I was a kid, we uh, lived on a little farm, and my dad believed in, uh, if you will, carving out our own existence out of the earth. So my, the first thing I uh, did, entrepreneurial-wise, and I'll use that with this one story because it's, kind of, it's kind of an interesting one. So I end up having my dad say to me, hey, uh, let's have you raise a young steer, and then we'll, when it's fat enough to take off to the to the slaughterhouse, we'll do that, and then you can pocket all the money. I said, well, that's cool. 
how does this work? He said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one of the calves when we have a new calf. So we got a new calf, raised this calf, takes about two years. So over two year period of time, fed this calf, curried the calf, made him feel good, petted him, made him fat, him, you know, and all that. And uh, in any event, so off we go, we go to the, uh, to the auction yard, not the slaughterhouse, actually, go to the auction yard. And at the auction yard, you know, somebody ends up buying my, my young uh, animal for X dollars. Let's just for fun, call it $200. Okay. So I get my $200. My dad hands me $200. We go, we sit at the kitchen table and my dad says, okay, let's go through the invoices. And I say, invoices, what is an invoice? So then he would lay down, here's the bill for the feed. Here's the bill for the vet services. And he'd lay down these bills. And as he did it, he would reach into my pile and pull money back and put it in his pocket. So after that's all done, I end up with $17. I got $17 out of my original 200. Now, I still don't know if my dad, you know, I can't remember if he charged me rent and things like that. But it was a great lesson for me to learn, oh, there's more to business than just gross revenue. So, uh, but I then went on, uh, joined a, a Fortune 100, Fortune, actually a Fortune 10 company called IBM, and uh, got myself on the fast track, got several promotions, ended up in management, ended up believing totally, absolutely, that I didn't belong in a company, in a corporation. And so uh, re went back into my entrepreneurial uh, early lifestyle and picked it up and have been doing ever since then. Interesting. So what do you do these days and who do you serve? Well, so uh, that actually ties in with my, you know, my second to last company. So my current one, Business Mastery, uh, we, I serve uh, uh, business owners who are uh, interested in scaling their business. Typically, they might have uh, three to five to seven or so senior management, uh, managing various departments, and they're trying to grow their business, double, triple, 10x its current revenue. But the, that story really began when I had my second to last business, which was an investment banking firm. And I decided after 17 years that it was time to sell that company. And so I was all prepared to have somebody show up on the doorstep and write a check and I'd put the money in my pocket and, uh, and write off into greener pastures. And what I discovered was that my business wasn't saleable, Mustafa, at all. The investment bank? It was, nobody wanted to buy it. And so I was pretty disappointed. This was late 1990s when this was taking place. And uh, so as good luck would have it, though, I was at a trade conference, met with one of my, I'll loosely say competitors. We didn't compete directly, but she was, she also owned an investment bank. And I told her what I was trying to do. And she said, well, no wonder uh, nobody would buy your business. And I said, well, why? You know, we, you know, we do pretty well. We make high profit. We're, we've got offices and, 
and two cities were, in, were in, right down the middle of Wall Street. We've got great employees. All of that is true. All of that makes you ordinary. You know, I, 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 ordinary. That's, that's really fun to hear, right? Ordinary. Well, as it turns out, I'll give you some statistics in a little bit about ordinary versus extraordinary and so forth. But the net of it was that I was pretty much a mirror of every other investment banking company in the world. And so there was nothing at all to differentiate my company from any other company. And it was compounded by the fact that I was effectively my own brand. My company was called Weatherly Private Capital, but everybody knew the company through me because I was the primary face to the market, if you will. Oh. So, yeah. So that was the, the first problem that I had was being too essential. The second problem I had is we were in, uh, in what I'd call the deal business, meaning that we uh, went through feast and famine. We went, uh, we'd have a deal, we'd raise the capital, we'd, we'd get paid, we'd have a nice, if you will, little pile of cash. Time would go on, we'd do another deal, and it was like a roller coaster. So uh, at the time, I didn't know what that meant. We'll circle back in a few minutes and I'll, we'll, put some, we'll put another spotlight on that, Mustafa, about this roller coaster ride that I was on. Fundamentally, it was lack of a system of management didn't have a system of management, didn't have any managers, which brings me to the third piece. Even though I had nearly 150 employees at the time, I really had no managers. I had a head of finance. I had a, I had a, a junior partner that, uh, that did the, put together the deals. And I had a, a, a man that ran the entire office in New York where we had 125 people, but I had no management beyond that. And so this woman said, well, you got three problems. One, you're essential. Two, you don't have a management system going on. And three, you don't have a team at all. <laughs> so that was late 1990s. In any event, so I, uh, I went out and tried to solve that problem and visited with business school deans. I knew a bunch. I went to them and, you know, they had these business schools. They had great brands, Harvard Business School, MIT, Stanford visited a couple more, and they all basically said the same thing to me, is, and that's this. Bill, you want to know how to run a business. We don't teach people how to run a business. We teach people how to be employees of business. Mm -hmm. So at that time, so this is late 90s, they finally learned, oh, MBA means business administration, <laughs> master of business administration. It does not say master of business ownership. And so that was a big lesson that I learned then. Second, I went to these large consulting firms, big, giant brand names. I knew a bunch of them. And the reason I knew these people is because we had a lot of interaction because of the business industry I was in. And then I found out from these consulting firms, they don't know a darn thing about running businesses either. They don't consult people in that space. They help people with projects. Today, it would be projects like installing Microsoft 365 or installing Salesforce or installing, installing Oracle or something like that. So they're just, they're just project management companies. And so that was, that was a dead end. And the third dead end, I have or more, but the third big one was business book writers. And I knew two or three of them, famous, super famous ones. 
And I went to see them and they said, hey, Bill, look, we're, what we're writing about is public companies, which uh, with, with information that's readily available. And uh, plus the stuff we wrote about, like good to great, if you go back and read the, read the aftermath five years later, all the good to great people were out of business. So that's another story. So I, I, found, I found a huge dead end. So I ended up creating a system of management, a philosophy of management. Today, scaleology is the philosophy and business mastery is the system. And that's what I basically use, Mustafa, mm-hmm. in what I currently do, helping business owners, no public companies, privately held businesses, uh, scale their business using those three tools I just mentioned. Interesting. couple questions. How did you have 150 people on your team and no management? I mean, how, were these people just doing their own thing? Yeah. So that's one of the, what I call the big, the big three lies. It's one of the big three. And it's very, um, it's very typical for business owners to hire what they consider to be the best and the brightest. You find the best person at whatever, and then you just let them do their thing. And uh, that's, you know, that's if, if you will, if you hire a dentist, let them do the thing that might work pretty well. But if you're hiring different kinds of positions, they need, they need accountability. They need goals. They need to be held accountable for keep completing those goals. I didn't do any of that sort of thing. We were very successful, but basically we're a collection of individual, if you will, individual practitioners, more like a law firm than a, if, if you will, a true a business. So uh, we were successful from the outside, but internally we were a real mess. Did you, at the end of the day, end up selling this business or what happened with that? Yeah. Yeah. So when I, when I finally figured out how to manage, you know, how to differentiate myself. So I went about basically getting myself fired. At the time I wasn't firing myself. I was just making myself unessential, uh, created a management team. I invented a management system which I installed. So I had three pieces. One, I had a singular strategy for growth, a mindset of focused on that. Number two, I created a system of management in simple terms. Let's call it as a nickname, goals and controls. And then number three, I created a culture of accountability. So I, we created a culture where people were held accountable to certain commitments that they made. And as a result, uh, within two and a half years, I sold the business to Oppenheimer. And so didn't take long, took me two and a half years to change the mess into converting us to a super high performing company. Love it. Um, what is the difference between growing and scaling a business? So even though I had 150 people, I was really growing my business. And so uh, maybe a good illustration for you to give you and our listeners is because people, they don't quite understand or see the difference. But if I can use Mother Nature, I can explain it. So if you think about being in the, in the uh, agriculture business, let's say, let's imagine we're, 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 we're good at growing fruit and we decide to get in the apple business. We plant a tree. A few years later, it's able to bear fruit. And ultimately, though, uh, uh, if you look at an apple tree, there's no apple tree that ever grew like Jack and the Beanstalk. Apple trees grow to a certain height. 
Uh, they're limited by that height, by mother nature. They produce a certain amount of apples. When you grow your business, it's just exactly the same. You are only able to grow it to the limit of your personal capability to produce something. And so that's, if you will, growing. It's very simple. That's why, you know, being a solopreneur, being, a, if you will, somebody that owns a beauty shop or somebody that's a lawyer or somebody that's in the online marketing business or somebody that's a coach or a consultant. Those are extremely simple businesses. They can only be grown. They can't be scaled. It's all, it's it effectively, it's an owner operator environment. It's a sole practitioner environment that's growing. Now, when you try to scale a business, a multitude of complexity all of a sudden enters the scene. So back to our apple growing business, if you want to scale that business, you've got to you've got to acquire land. You've got to deal with lawyers and real estate agents. You've got to deal with government regulators who want to restrict the size of your land. You've got to figure out how to put roads in there, how to irrigate, how to how to how to deal with vendors, how to how to go out and talk to the shopping centers to get to, to get them to stock your fruit, to figure out how to package the fruit, how to market, how to create labels, how to uh, how to uh, hire uh, practitioners and managers and then manage the people you hire. And I can go on and on for an hour and a half about scaling. Scaling is complex, multi-nuanced, completely out of the league of any practitioner. So if somebody's a dentist, that's why they're a single dentist or two or three of them. They don't have a thousand people in a room. It's just not practical. It's not a practical business to scale. So scaling is complex, multifaceted, got nothing to do with your current profession. You've got to convert yourself into being an owner. Then if you decide you want to be an owner operator, meaning everything goes through you, you control everything, you're the end all and, and, and do all like I did with my investment bank, that won't work. So the only way to scale is to get the hell out of the way, effectively get promoted in from if you will, sole practitioner to owner operator to become, if you will, the investor. So that's kind of part one. That's let's call that in scaling the owner's journey. The myth that people fall into is the myth that you've got to basically be able to do it all to be superwoman or something similar to that. You got to do it all by yourself. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. See, if, 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 if you're growing your business, you're, you might get, let's say, virtual assistant or uh, a, a, a private assistant or somebody to help you out. And all they're really doing is leveraging you. They're, they're taking various things off your plate, things like maybe copywriting or, or uh, let's say, uh, sales or marketing or something. But as a practical matter, you're not scaling. Scaling means you remove yourself from everything and then hire management to take care of all those area, area, uh, other areas of responsibility. Got it. So scaling is when you remove yourself. Well, that's part one. Part one. <clears throat> part two. So, of let, let me ask a question before yeah. we go to follow on that path. When do I know and when, when does a business know that it is ready to scale? Well, first off, most aren't. So just to give you some statistics, and I, I know the U.S. fairly well, I don't know necessarily Canada, the rest of the world. But in the United States, there are 
uh, oh, uh, nearly 33 million, 33 million small businesses. 99.9% of those businesses, 99.9% of 33 million have revenue of less than 1 million, less than seven figures. So the vast majority of what's called small businesses are, in, 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 as a practical matter, they're microscopic. Those businesses, the vast majority of them, will never ever get to the point where they where they uh, can begin scaling. Uh, what happens is, though, there's the, that's an extremely lucrative marketplace. So if you happen to be selling to that space, i.e. the seven, seven-figure business owner, it's super, super juicy because those people tend to be extreme consumers, almost addicted on the next shiny penny. So they make a great mark. If you want to market to business owners, you go for the solopreneurs. They're the ones that are going to be buying everything under the sun. Now, Interesting. scaling. So let's call scaling when you start making the transition out of being of requiring that you are the end all and do all and start realizing you've got to you've got to bring in management. So let's use the word management. So from staff. Staff like I had, I had staff, but I was the sole basic manager. Uh, when you start bringing in managers then you'll, you're starting to position yourself to scale. The problem that people have in that space is they're, they're much too what I'll call opportunistic, meaning that they don't have a system of management. They don't have a method of management. They don't have a philosophy of management. What they're doing instead is waiting for things to show up, uh, i.e. a problem, then they try to solve it, an opportunity, they try to take advantage of it. And so it's, uh, it resembles, when I look at it, it resembles the carnival game called whack-a-mole. So if something pops up, they bang it on the head. So that's a typical, if you will, company that's trying to scale, but is unable to do so because they don't have a system of management. They might have a system of marketing. They might have a sales funnel, but they don't have a management system. A management system enables people to sail through things like the COVID economic crash and burn and smoldering, whatever in the world's happening now. Uh, people with a management system went through them with flying colors. Uh, people without one uh, went out of business, uh, suffered, ended up taking PPP loans, things like that. Love it. How do you go about developing? Um, okay, let me ask. The, I'm going probably too far ahead. Okay. When do you hire your first manager? Well, um, but going back, I mean, with all the experience that with all the experience that you have, yeah. If you would have to do it all over again, when would you have hired your first manager? Okay, that's a different question. No, because now I can so then I can deal with an investment banking business. So mm -hmm. yes, so the quick answer is depending on the kind of business is when you know what manager you should hire and so forth and so on. But um, so uh, whenever you feel that you can identify somebody that could do 
a better job of management, managing some area of your business. And in my case, it would have been, in my case, converting Calm from being one of the, the principal producer in New York to being the manager of Weatherly New York office. So my first hire in that case was the branch manager. Or, and, and then the, our next hires were managers that supported Tom, which was the directors of sales and the director of production and the director of finance. So we had Tom and then three managers almost immediately. So in my case, I handled, I hired four at once or promoted four in my case. Finance. I was director of operation, finance, and sales. In the investment banking space. And there's a director of investment banking? No, no, no. I'm just saying that that answer, if you would have said, if you were a construction company, would those be your first three managers? The answer would be no. It'd be different three managers because you're in a different industry. Depends on the but in my particular industry, that's the three that I ended up hiring first. Now, typically for someone that is watching or listening to this later, when should a business owner think about hiring their first manager? Well, first off, you've got to make a decision. Am I going to be in the 99.9% .9 that are going to stick and stay under a million dollars and be happy with it? Nothing wrong with that. Uh, when I when my business was south of a million dollars, my own current business, uh, I was able to net about 800,000. So nothing wrong with netting 800,000. I had very little costs. Uh, now, if you've got a business doing less than a million and you're netting 50,000, you, you probably should figure out a way to get that revenue up so that your net would be higher. So if there's, that's a large range uh, of, uh, of potential outcomes. But I don't think that should be the, the, your objective. Your objective should be first making a decision about what is your strategy for growth going to be? What is your singular strategy for growth? What are you going to do what is going to be the core strategy? Once you've decided on that core strategy, then you can answer, ask yourself and answer questions like, you know, what management should I hire and so forth. But step one is to develop a vision for the future of some state that you want to be in. I, I interviewed a guy today from Denver, for example, and he told me how he wanted to build his service company. He, he basically does repairs for the restaurant industry and how he wanted to build his business into something that was franchisable. So that was step one in his mind. He was able to create a vision. Second, he had a strategy. His strategy was to build a franchise model. That was his strategy for growth. So one vision, two a central strategy. Once that's together, then you can start thinking about building your team. Love it. Um, gang, if you're watching or listening, or have questions about growing and scaling your business, put them in a comment and we'll do our best to cover and respond back to you. Now, Bill, what are the vital elements for um, scaling a business? So we get, we covered two already. So the first one really is that you've got to uh, get in your mind that you need to come up with a singular strategy for growth, which really is a long-term vision and a growth strategy. And after you've got that in mind, you need to have a system, a method, a methodology for management, which is a, which is a system, kind of the, 
it's kind of the mother system above all the other systems. So another system would be like, for example, your uh, your uh, billing and accounts receivable system. Above that is the management system. Your sales and marketing system. Above that is your management system. Your per, your production and quality system. Above that's the management system. A lot of companies never think about a management system. They, they instead think about individual departments with the manager running the individual departments. That's, that's a little different than having practitioners do whatever in hell they want to do, but it's not, it's not the same as having a management system. So in order to do that, in order to scale, the next super important thing to do is to read, collapse all the variables down to what I call a vital few. And we're going to talk a bit about personal productivity, but part of it is coming up with a vital few. A lot of people think uh, erroneously that the larger, more complicated the business, the more things you have to keep track of. And I've proven over the last 25 years that's completely backward thinking. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can manage with management system any size business with a handful of what I call vital drivers. So the next, after we've got our, our strategy in place, next thing to do is to create a game plan for the next, let's say, 12 months. And that game plan should include a, a list of vital drivers, five, six, maybe maximum 15 vital drivers. And that's all we need to have a super successful scaling organization. But we can't do it in any other way. So we can't just say, who am I going to hire with, prior to having your vision, strategy, game plan, and vital driver determined. Hmm. What are some examples of uh, vital drivers for a business? So some that are common. Well, first off, now we're so let me see if I can explain it this way. So the the lower or the closer to the customer you get in a business, the more different they are. So. If you're running a dental company, the customer engagement is with the, uh, the uh, drills and, and polishing tools and, and x-rays and bright lights. I mean, so, so that, that is entirely different than if, we, if you're in the, let's say, the construction business where the closest thing to your customer would be uh, uh, ditches and, and foundations and concrete and stuff like that. So at, at, down at the, at the at the, if you will, the delivery level, businesses are entirely different. As we move down from vision and strategy and things into vital drivers, vital drivers in a construction company are different than vital drivers in a dental office. But in common would be things potentially like revenue. Revenue often is a vital driver. Uh, and maybe gross margin would be another that would fit most businesses. But if you think of a typical uh, financial statement of uh, income statement and balance sheet, there are hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of items in there. Most of those are trivial for you at the management level, ownership level. They're vital for somebody that's doing the books. But for you, you could probably get by with revenue and gross margin, for example. Uh, so that would be a couple if you're, if you're in any sort of a, of a business where you're delivering some product or service, another common vital driver, 
again, not exclusive, but common, would be quality, some sort of quality measure like refunds or uh, customer complaints, a couple of vital drivers there that, were, that are in common. But then uh, uh, as we get into different businesses, they become different. So I like to break them into four categories. This will help our listeners. Four categories. One, financials. Two, productivity. Three, business development. And four, quality. If you think of two to three vital drivers for each of those four categories, you're well on your way to getting into the top 1% of all the businesses out there. Love it. So, gang, if you're watching or listening, the four categories of drivers or what I would call KPIs to look for are financials, productivity, business development, and quality. And uh, I guess by setting one, um, uh, I, I call it KPI. What do you? What did you call it again? Well, okay. So that's you. But you brought a beautiful point up. So there's a lot of what I'll call industry standards, industry norms. And I got in this trap myself. KPIs, for those of you that don't know, stands for key performance indicators. And it's uh, what I would call, in simple terms, it's a cluster. It is a way for your, to con if you want to convert your business into stunningly slow speed, focus on key performance indicators. So in every industry, there are industry standards industry norms, industry key performance indicators. When I use the word industry, I want you to get into your, if you want to scale and you do not get this concept, I promise you will never scale. And that is that the word standard also means average. The word standard means average. Let me tell you, when I ran my investment bank, I loved the industry standards. And that's why my competitor said, Bill, you got an ordinary company. So it's a uh, KPIs uh, is a great way for you to turn yourself, if you've got a nice company, into a mediocre one. So no, what you need to do is under, to have this kind of brutality in, in your mind. Now, I, I know when I, when I talk like this, people say, Bill, you're awful brutal. Yeah, I am brutal. And I'm talking to the top 1% of, of business owners, not the 99. If you're in the 99, it won't make any sense to you. But you've got to think about your business the same way you think about the human body. A KPI is equivalent to having a hand, your left hand. That's called a key performance indicator. It allows you to pick up something with your left hand. The truth of the matter is you'll still live a vital driver in the human body includes the brain and the heart. A couple of others, maybe. But your teeth, they're not vital. They're key and important and nice and pretty, but they're not vital. But if, but if most business owners that get involved in this, let's call it uh, uh, super anal uh, uh, looks at their business, then the, all they do is spend their time looking at the financial statement looking at the KPIs, reading all the industry journals, grinding themselves down. So a vital driver is gross margin, for example, but a vital driver is not the cost per lead. But yet people get involved in that kind of stuff. If you're able to have a zero cost of goods sold, that means 
your gross margin is 100%. That is so much more valuable than uh, the price per lead. Just to put a little kind of cap on that notion. So we're talking about the word vital, not important, not nice, not pretty, not well marketed to you, not what the industry does, not what the average player does, but the uh, but what you do if you want to scale. Now, again, just to let everybody off the hook, 99.9% of the businesses have less than a, than a million dollars. 85% of all the businesses in the U.S. have zero employees, zero employees. You get the one, two, five, ten. We're talking about, you know, top 10, 15 percent of the companies. And then when you get above above 500, you know, the microscopic number of companies, less than one tenth of one percent of the companies ever get to 100 million. That's so right. don't beat yourself up if you if you if you if you aren't in position to scale because you're you're like most people. So yeah. don't beat yourself. Yeah. up. Fair enough. Well, that, that was a new stat I learned. 85% of businesses have zero employees. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, an easy way to get that is to go to the Small Business Administration and they'll give you that all that data. Absolutely. You could probably search it up on, on stats. I know yeah, we have maybe, a stats. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Be careful. Be careful about searching stuff out because... <laughs> Now you can ask chat GPT for all the numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to remember that uh, uh, in simple terms, readily available information is often just the ordinary information. And if you're trying to get elite information, uh, you want to talk, uh, you want to know how to, to scale a business, talk to Elon Musk, not the, not some guy in your industry at random. That's right. Not to a guy who never sold the lemonade in their life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's so there's the answer. There's the difference between KPIs and uh, and uh, and vital. So you want to get a list of vital drivers. I'm not against KPIs. You can have them if you want, but by all means, don't spend your time looking at them. So, but Bill, for the KPIs, but I I think I call the vital drivers KPIs, and I'm not like spending like I don't have. 20 or 30 KPIs, I would probably track two or three and I, I just call them different. Uh, 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 probably I have the same view as you do. Like I'm not spending too much. No, time I wasn't trying, I wasn't trying to lecture to you. I'm just saying that, uh, that if, 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 for example, if oh, I'm just trying to tell our listeners, uh, Mustafa, if they were to look in their industry for KPIs, they could they'd probably get a list of multiple probably a ton. of KPIs. Yeah. And I just said, don't go down that rat hole. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, what are some of the major mistakes that people make um, when it comes to scaling? Well, we get, we talked about two. And, and the first one is, you know, they don't have a singular strategy for growth. They have, they have a whole collection of strategies. Number two, the second big mistake is that they're opportunistic and they don't have a system of management that's anticipating things down the road. And number three is that they believe that if they hire the best and the brightest employee, then uh, the, these employees will take care of your business for you. You don't have to do anything. And that's the exact opposite of the truth, which is you've got to have an accountability culture. So the big, the third mistake is people fail to have a culture of accountability. Tell me more about the culture of accountability. What do you mean by that? And where do we start with that? So um, accountability is in, in simple terms, it's got two parts. It's really part one is making commitments so, for example, a commitment would be, uh, "I'll meet you for I'll meet you tomorrow at noon for lunch." That's a commitment. Far too many people blow that off, show up 15 minutes late, 
forget about it, have some excuse, whatever. That would be the difference between accountability, i.e. showing up on time, on place every time, and a lack of accountability would be blowing people off. In a business environment, uh, a great illustration is if I compare business to, uh, uh, let's say, track and field, a relay. So the way a relay works, typically there are four person relays. Person one runs leg one and person two, leg two, et cetera. So the accountability takes place in the exchange of the baton. Envision first woman runs 100, and, 100 uh, meters and her job is to hand the baton to the second person. If the, sec if the second person believes that the first person will keep their commitment, and that is to show up 11 seconds later and hand her the baton, she'll take off, off running like a bat out of hell when the, when the person approaching is maybe 15 yards away. And then they'll, she'll be at full speed when the other person shows up. That's a, that gives a graceless, a graceful handoff. A company without accountability works like this. A salesperson says, uh, hey, George, I'm going to close Acme Construction next week, and I'd like you to, 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 to order the concrete for, to build the building. If the, uh, the head of production didn't believe the salesperson, they wouldn't do anything. And what would happen is in the rare instance, the salesman actually shows up with the agreement, the, the production guys will say, oh, my God. You actually delivered a sale. Jeez, I got to get it by ordering the, the, the equipment. So a typical company goes smash, smash, smash. And that is, if you will, a lack of accountability. So uh, uh, accountability culture is people make commitments and they deliver. Make commitments, they deliver. And then the management system assures that happens by holding people accountable on a, on a frequent basis. Fantastic. So you make it in accountability culture, something's up. You make a commitment and you deliver and you're held accountable for what you're promised. Well, that's it. But the second part of it is, is that the other person believes, believes that somebody will deliver as promised and will hold them accountable for that. And what's, the ma what's magic about that is it means that the, the boss, the owner has no job whatsoever in that transaction. It's all happening. Accountability happens without the owner's involvement. Love it. Um, we promised people to go over the single thing that a business owner can do to 10x their productivity. What well, you don't have to be a business owner to do what I'm, what I'm saying. And, uh, and that is, uh, so here's the kind of the, the deal. We're talking about personal productivity. How can you get more done in an hour than you can typically get done in a day? Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and really, it's, uh, it's, it's understanding the concept of vital Few. We have already talked about vital. In the human body, vital is brain and heart, for example. But in your day-to-day -day activities, there's a collection of trivia, things that are fun, things that take a little bit of time, distractions, shiny pennies, and things that are unbelievably valuable and productive. So, so what we need to do if we're going to increase our productivity is to make sure at all costs that we spend time on the most vital. And the way I do that is first, you got to understand the concept of what I call the Pareto principle, which is 
Some people call it as the 80-20 rule. Actually, Robert Duran created the 80-20 rule based on Pareto, but fine, we'll call it the, the Pareto principle. But it's really Pareto to the third power. So what Pareto, uh, Pareto tells us, or 80-20 tells us, is that 20% of the input, call it time, versus 80% of the outcome, let's call it results. 20% of our, you know, our time produces 80% of the results. The key is to pick the right 20% time. But 20% of a day is what? Uh, typically a couple hours. So in a couple hours, you can get 80% done. Many, many, many people just fritter away the day and never get to that 20%. But that's called Pareto. I call it Pareto to the first power. Pareto to the second power says, okay, let's look at the 20% of your time. So if you take 20% of 20, now you've got 4% of your time. So 4% of your time is going to produce 80% of 80%. 8 times 8 is 64, telling us that 4% of your time produces 64% of your results. Key is find that 4% and get that done. Now, what's 4% of 10 hours? 40 minutes? No, four minutes, not very much. And so if that produces... 64%, that's a pretty good trade. So spend your time there. And then to the third power simply means take 80% of 4%, 80% of 4 is 0.8, let's call it 1%. So it means 1% of your time produces 80% of 64, which is 50%. And so in simple terms, 1% of your time produces half your results. Make sure on a daily basis, you find that 1%, get that done, you get half your normal total output of the day finished. I do that, Mustafa, with a routine. I do it, in my case, multiple times a day. But uh, you certainly should, I recommend people do it once a day. Once a day, you simply say, based on everything I did today, everything I did today, everything I did today, am I closer to my long-term vision? Remember, we got that vision in place at the beginning. And if the answer is no, that's okay. If the answer is yes, that's okay. But the next question is most vital, and that is, what's the single most vital thing I can do tomorrow that will take me the furthest distance down the road to my long-term vision. You keep that going on a daily basis. You're always determining what's the most vital thing I can do tomorrow. And once you get that pattern going, you'll get at a minimum a tenfold increase in personal productivity. Uh, by the way, the whole system I just went through with you, this whole accountability culture, high-performance team management system, focusing on your long-term vision, have a singular growth strategy, all of that's based around that same philosophy of focusing on the vital few and ignoring the trivial. Many, that's how you scale. Love it. Um, uh you have a gift uh, titled How to Tennis Your Personal Productivity. Tell us I do, I do, I do. And the simplest way to get to that is just go to getbillsgift.com and you'll get your hands on it right away. Yeah. So the the, the uh, link, uh, gang, is in the comments of the show, in the descriptions of the show. And if you're listening, you can go to getbillsgift.com, G-E-T-B-I-L-L-S, gift.com. And you will get to what is it? What is it? What are they getting when they go there? Pretty much. Oh, pretty much. It's a it's a little master class. It's about 15 minutes long. And it kind of walks through what we did real quickly there about teaching people how to focus on the vital few and ignore the trivial many. Yeah. Notice it's only 15 minutes. It's not five hours to teach you how to do something simple. 
It seems like it's a yeah, yeah, that's, 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 a lot of people don't pick up on that. I tried to get it under 10 minutes. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> it, took, it took me yeah. actually, well, it's actually 12 minutes and 40 some seconds. Yeah. Sometimes I see trainings that are like, oh, here's a simple thing. It takes 35 days to learn the simple thing or 472 pages. I'm like, What's simple about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I learned that way back in the day when I first started my consulting business in 1999. And I used, I, I started out for some, I don't know why, but I used to charge people for half days. I didn't, I never did by the hour. I did half days and full days. And uh, somebody would say, well, they'd say to me, uh, well, uh, uh, what if, what if I, I wanted uh, to pay less money? And I said, well, it would just take more time, take more time. What would you prefer? Would you pay? prefer fast or slow well fast okay well then fast is more expensive so if i can get it done in a minute it's more valuable to you than if i can get it done in an hour right yeah okay cool that established if you want my pricing model so i i i did i always price things on result not on time love it love it i think a lot of business owners actually um make uh, that mistake about time with respect to value and time and pricing Oh, oh, so they have customers. a hard time pricing out. Uh, customers are like, oh, you only took a minute. Right. And then they're like, well, yeah, yeah that, would, that would be people in the like coaching consulting business. But if, if somebody's in like, you know, the, uh, you know, let's say dentistry, that would, that wouldn't be applicable. That's or right. Or if you will, I don't think if you went in to get a, get your hair, if you will, your hair uh, highlighted or something like that, you want somebody to say, hey, I can I charge you $250 and it'll take me 30 seconds. I wouldn't work, but yeah, in certain, and certainly in the coaching consulting business, uh, people do get hung up on pricing by the hour. And let me explain why, by the way, the reason is that's the standard of the industry. I've already talked about, ignore the standards of the industry. Do what the one percenters do. The one percenters in your industry don't charge by the hour. They charge by the result. Love it. Don't charge by the hour charge by the result write that down somewhere and probably think about it long and hard and reach out to <laughs> bill if you have questions about that so bill give us a 30 second simple or what you might call a vital marketing strategy that people could do or implement and would get them closer to results so you, you want to deal on uh, thinking about marketing only so the uh, the, the most the most the, the the I'm gonna call it the simple and quickest marketing strategy that I could come up with is this: go to your former clients and ask them, give them a template, but ask them. And there's tools you can do this very simply. Send them a little email message somehow and ask them to give you instantly, right back immediately a video testimonial about their experience with you on and give them a little kind of hint. Uh, give us a, a quick a case study, George, on how I helped you uh, uh, hire your superstar salesman, salesman or whatever your particular area is. That's the simplest, easy, get people, make it easy for people to give you a case study slash testimonial. I love it. Actually, soon as you said that we're going to use it with actually probably with it with it with a mutual client of ours i'm not going to name names but uh, uh we were 
working on, on some reviews and testimonials, but not with video ones. And I think they could use some of that. So thank you for well, that. Look, I, I, you and I are not in the business of necessarily uh, promoting certain vendors, but there's a tool that I use for this purpose. It's called Dub, D-U-B-B. It does, they have a system that does exactly what I said. Part of their system, you don't have to adopt anything. Ah, Dub, is that like Dub.com? And maybe it could be dub.io, but their their brand is pretty strong. So if you type in dub, like dub video, you'll find them. For videos. And and you could use that to solicit and get uh, testimonials from your customers. Yeah, easily, yeah right? they actually have a little system and it te they teach a little micro class that teaches you how to script a little message to your customer, client and say, I'd like you to get back to me immediately. And then inside the video that you send to people is a button. They push the button. It turns on their camera, the whole deal. Pretty simple. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, can I ask you some personal questions? Okay. All right. What's a new thing you have tried recently, big or small? New thing I've tried recently is I've, I've, I've fallen in love with, with a cooking process called sous vide. And so... <coughs> Excuse me. For those of you who don't know, that's basically <clears throat> a high-end restaurant trick of always delivering, uh, for, for example, steaks at exactly the right temperature every single time, and they're cooking dozens and dozens of them. Sous vide, you can have a bunch of, if you will, meat products in, in, in vats of hot water in, inside of a, a vacuum wrap, and you just dial the water up to the temperature you want. Uh, then when somebody orders medium rare, you pull it out, and you sear it at super high temperature, and it, it's delivered perfectly every single time. So <laughs> when I first thought of that idea, it seemed so odd. But finally, I understood that it had to be a vacuum sealed. She works like a top. Sous vide. How do you, how do you spell that? S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E. Uh, sous vide. V-I-D-E. Sous vide. Yep. All right. Love it. I'm going to look it up. Give me two of your favorite books. Well, uh, uh, two of my favorite books. I, so I like to read The Richest Man from Babylon once a year. And uh, so that's number one. And number two, I'm, I'm giving you now my annual reads. And number two is, is the famous Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow, Grow Rich. Grow Rich. Love it. What's one advice that made a big impact on business or life for you? Uh, yeah, so the probably the biggest impact I've already kind of touched on it, and and that was when I had my competitors said, "Hey, Bill, your mistake is you're you're trying to emulate the industry average. What you need to do instead is emulate the top one percent." In her case, like me, and she was sweet enough to let me in on the secrets I gave you a little bit earlier today. Love it. So try to copy like the top one percent instead of the rest of the pack. Correct. Love it. Uh, Bill, if you had a, a Facebook or Google ad where everyone around the globe could see uh, your message, whoever had access to the internet, what would your message be for the people of Earth? You're talking about for the, everybody. So nothing to, do with, nothing to do with my business. You have one message everyone around the globe with access to internet could see. What would it be? Well, that would be... Uh, uh, to practice the art of ignorance. What do you mean by that? I think, unfortunately, people have been conditioned to say, I've heard that. 
I'm familiar with, I, I know that, I know, I know. Instead of doing that, you say, instead, even if you know it cold, somebody brings up nuclear fission and you're the world's expert in nuclear fission, instead of saying, I know that, you say, tell me more. Practice the art of ignorance. Never act like you know it all. Oh, love it. Love it, love it. Bill, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing all the knowledge and wisdom. You're, gang. If you're watching or listening. Go back and watch and re-watch and re-listen this episode. There was a lot of value bombs in there and nuggets and wisdom that you could use like right away. And uh, do reach out to Bill. Go get his gift at getbillsgift.com. The uh, how to 10x your personal product productivity. He has a 15 minute video where he shows you how to become productive in like 10 minutes, which is uh, uh, very important and essential for your success. The one 40 minute thing that moves you along about 64% uh, in a day or gets you closer to your goal and vision. It's vitally important to know that. And if you don't know, and if, if ev here's a tip, if everything on your list is essential, you have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> right? As if everything is a five out of five or a 10 out of 10 priority, you have a problem. You don't know how to prioritize. Go yeah. watch this video and he will show you how to do it. Bill, was there anything that you perhaps wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about? There uh, is not. You did a fantastic job of of, of getting clarification on some of the points I made. I appreciate that very much. I'm happy to have been here. Hopefully you're happy. Hopefully our, happy. your audience is super happy as well. Gang, uh, uh, by liking and sharing uh, uh, the show on whichever channel you're watching, you will support us. You will help us get the message across to other people in your network and other people around you. If you want to share the link with them or tag a friend on social media in the conversation, if you know a business owner who could benefit from growing and scale and scaling their business, which is pretty much every business owner, put them in a comment. Uh, don't be shy. And uh, if you have any questions for Bill or, or, or me, again, put them in a comment and we'll do our best to get back to you. You've been uh, watching and listening to Sim the Simple Marketing Show. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye now.